Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. Eve Rodsky is a Harvard-educated lawyer and is also the author of New York Times bestselling book, Fair Play. Much of her work focuses on working with families and helping them with mediation, strategy, and organizational management. She specializes in helping couples seek balance, efficiency, and peace within their marriages and home. Her work examines an age-old problem, women shouldering the brunt of childbearing and domestic life responsibilities. Her methods seek to create a system for domestic rebalance and familial peace. I'm so excited to have Eve on the podcast today. Whether you're a mom or not, I think the key learnings from what she has to say and what she wrote about in her book, Fair Play, are good for all of us to take home and internalize Absolutely. I can't wait to have this conversation. I'm on the brink of having my first child and coming into motherhood, that whole new stage in a relationship. So it'll be great to have some of her advice in my brain before going into it. Okay, let's get started with Eve. Hi, Eve. We're so happy to have you here with us today. Thanks for joining. I'm so happy to be here. And congratulations on your upcoming baby. <laughs> Thanks, both of us. Yeah. Wit is due any second. I uh, have the three-month countdown now. Well, we like to start off every podcast conversation with a question around mission. So what do you believe is your mission here on earth? Like, what are you here to do to give to, to gift to all of us? Oh, I love I love that you get to go deep so early. I would say that my mission is to be the change I want to see in the world. It's something my mother, that's a Gandhi quote, but we didn't I grew up in a single mother household close to where Danielle, I think you were saying you live in the Lower East Side. And my mother didn't believe in in material possessions. So sometimes that was embarrassing because we would go around with garbage bags instead of suitcases on airplanes and stuff. But where it was really helpful was my birthday gift every year. She said, you know, I'm not going to buy you a, a present per se, but I will get you a Greyhound bus ticket. And if you want to go to Washington, D.C. in March for something that you care about, I'll take wow. you. That was how I think role modeling started for me, that I wanted to be the change I wanted to see in the world. And so that's the value system I live by, that if I say something, I want to live it. And if I could just reach one other person to make their lives better, then it's worth it. Even though it's scary, of course, to share yourself with mm -hmm. the world. I think a lot of people who get into 
this space of helping people have some kind of story like that, some sort of why a something that has happened in their life and they want to make sure that it's different for other people, perhaps. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into this? Absolutely. I'm a lawyer and a trained mediator. So becoming an expert on the gendered division of labor was definitely (laughs) not something I thought I would be doing because my day job is I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. Oh my God. Love that show. (laughs) Um, I can't even watch it because it's so triggering, but (laughs) but you should feel bad for me. But but that's my lens. Um, I'm a lawyer. I'm a mediator. I work on communication. But what happened to me, and I talk about this in Fair Play, but you know, you can't make this shit up, right? I mean, this, I came to this work because of a text my husband sent me. And right after my second son, Ben, was born, you know, the first child I always say, that's like the can hang on, have it all, means do it all. You know, you could sort of hang on and and feel that societal pressure and still barely get by. But that second child for me was was a real eye-opener. And right after Ben was born. I had Seth send me a text or he sent me the text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And <laughs> I love that yes, story. And I think the, <laughs> the, the scene, the scene is what I want to paint because I can talk about it all I want in the book, but it's the scene that we all go through that reminds me of what's happening today, right? When space and time is sort of collapsing on all of us. It was breast pump in a diaper bag in the passenger seat of my car when I got that text. I had gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car that morning. I had a client contract in my lap because I had opted out of the traditional workforce. And I put that in quotes because subsequently I've learned that I was actually pushed out. But I thought that I was going to get way more Mm -hmm. flexibility if I was what I call the case of the 1099 and had my own business. So I had a pen that was in my lap marking up this contract. It was stabbing me in the vagina every time I would hit a stop sign. I was late to pick up Zach, (laughs) who is, you know, in a toddler transition program, which in America, because we value working, two working parents, you know, those programs last like six minutes. So I was racing to pick up Zach and in all that chaos, that's where that text came in. And it was about eight, eight and a half years ago now. And I remember pulling over. And for those of you who don't live in LA, like, you know, we take traffic seriously here. And for me to pull over and start crying over that text, things had to be really bad. But what I was crying about was that my marriage seemed to be falling apart over over my role as the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs. But really what was happening was I was thinking to myself, you know, I used to be able to manage employee teams And now I'm in a place where I'm so overwhelmed, I can't even manage a grocery list. So I was still blaming myself. And then on top of that, really, like this was not the career marriage combo at all that I thought I was going to have. And so that surprise and shock and how did I get here, that really low point in my life is sort of how I came to be curious about what was happening to me. I love, (laughs) I have so many questions for you. But I love this so much. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, just as number two comes along. So I'm pregnant with number two. I have a two-year-old and I am very fortunate in that my husband is incredibly involved. He actually stays home with our two-year-old and he will be staying home with the second as well. So he's very involved. And so some of your stuff, 
I guess I was surprised at still how much I empathize with everything you were saying in your book and talking about like all the shit I do and, and what's fair play. And I guess I just realized how much I do just by being mom. And even though he is doing so much because he's with her more throughout the day than I am, somehow I still feel like I'm doing more, even though I'm gone for, you know, eight to 10 hours every single day. And I love your list. So I'd love for you to like talk about how that was born and what that kind of did for you and and what it brought into the light for you. Because when you just told your story about how you were, you are such a badass career woman, but then when it came to the home, you felt like you were blaming yourself and you quote, couldn't perform. I think it's really because of what you say, which is we don't even realize all we're doing. Correct. We're like, Correct. We do have no idea what all the things are. And I think especially as mothers, we just do it. And there's this kind of innate feeling of like, oh, this is my job. Or it maybe it, it's just more intuitive. So I pick it up and my husband needs more direction around some of these things. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? Well thank you. I thank you for sharing your family structure. And I think it really is great. The more we have men who are in stay-at-home positions, I feel like the more we will start as a society to value care. So we'll talk about sort of the policies mm-hmm. and the bigger structures. But I think that's all, if, if that's all your listeners take away today is that they're not alone, because this is the problem. The home presents really dangerous. It's a really dangerous place for feminism or for uh, organizational management because you think you're fighting over blueberries, or a sponge in the sink, right? Or who forgot to pack the diaper bag? Or as a man in White Plains, New York told me he's divorcing over a glue stick. And we can unpack, you know, what sort of what that means, <laughs> why his wife sort of decided to leave him over an Albert Einstein biography project. But it presents really small. But I think looking at the bigger issues was what was so surprising to me. First off, this is not just us talking, right? Um, it turns out that what I call the she fault, the default parent has a name. It's called the second shift. It's called the mental load. You may have heard of the term emotional labor. But my favorite term was actually coined in 1986, which just shows you how little has changed. And it was a term called invisible work. And why I love that term so much when I became curious about the subject after I got that Blueberries text was there was a modicum of a solution in it, Danielle and Whitney, right? This idea that, okay, well, if it's invisible, all I need to do is make it visible. Mm. So um, what happened around that time was another really important point, Danielle, you brought up about using your voice, how some very powerful women have really big voices, but then in my research, I saw similar to what was happening to me that they lose their voice in the home. And that happened right after the Blueberries Day where I was on this breast cancer march with all these really badass women like you. And my friend had passed away in law school. We were honoring her life. And we had this great morning away from our kids. It was, you know, an all pink sort of carrying signs that say like, not just a female problem, current strength and power. We had this really beautiful morning. And I think I was more aware, of course, because I had just had that Blueberries moment about what was happening around me, but it was like a reverse Cinderella. Like you could just imagine like noon came and all of our phones started blowing up, right? With texts from our partners. And this was not even just heteronormative couples, but most were. And they were texts like, where did you put Hudson's soccer bag? 
what's the dress of the birthday party? Uh, where did you leave the gift for me? My favorite was my friend Kate's husband, which just said, do the kids need to eat lunch? (laughs) (laughs) You, you know, I was watching all this silently observing at that time. And I think the saddest part for me was when all of those women looked at me, these powerful, strong women, Oscar winning producer, head of stroke and trauma at Cedar sinai they looked at me and said, you know what? We left our partners with too much to do. Thanks Eve for making the reservation at the dim sum restaurant, but we need to leave. And so those women, they went home to find Hudson soccer bag and to bring a perfectly wrapped gift to the birthday party and to feed their kids lunch. And it was the first day where I started to resist. And by that, I mean, I started to count up how many texts and phone calls we had received. And I think it's important to note, we had 30 phone calls and 46 texts for 10 women over 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And that, that to me was the beginning of understanding that if I was going to make the invisible visible, I need to start to figure out who's packing the soccer bag, who is in charge of the birthday party gift. And I started to write all this stuff down. And like a good lawyer, I opened up Excel and I started to write fine tabs and I titled the, my beautiful spreadsheet, the shit I do spreadsheet. And I started to ask those women, what do you do that takes more than two minutes of your time? Even if your husband helps too, and you say you both do it, I want to know what you do that takes more than two minutes of your time. So I started writing things down like organizing the school lunch menu for the week or researching a a dentist, you know, things like that. But what was so interesting was women all over the country, I didn't even know, started to get the spreadsheet from each other. And so I would have women I didn't, who had never met, uh, reach out to me on text or find me somehow and say, hey, Eve, I got your Excel sheet and I wanted to add to it. You know, I didn't see Elf on the Shelf here. That's 20 (laughs) minutes time. And then this one woman made me laugh because she said, well, you put two minutes for sunscreen. She's like, but what about 30 minutes for the chase? (laughs) And so I was like, okay, 30 minutes for the chase. And I think what happened after that list was I spent nine months on it and I finally had the courage to send it off to Seth. And I say that importantly, because I did not use my voice in my home at that time, even though I'm a Harvard trained lawyer who's trained to use my voice, I have that privilege and still didn't use my voice. But I decided to passively aggressively send Seth this 19 million megabyte spreadsheet that he had no idea I was working on, just the subject line, can't wait to discuss. (laughs) And as you can imagine, right, he didn't. I didn't get, I'll just say I didn't get the reaction. I thought what did I you think get. you were going to get? You said you get like a monkey or something, right? I guess. Yeah. 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 I got like one monkey. I didn't even get the courtesy of the three fucking emoji trio. I just got like the sad monkey that's covering its eyes. Um, I think I, I, I thought I would get, wow, this is really amazing. And we should sit down to rebalance. I'm so sorry that um, I had no idea that all of this shit was on your plate. Right. I, I guess I thought I would get something more than that. But I think a lot of us do that, right? We think lists alone are going to save us. And I'm here to tell you that lists alone don't work. They've never worked. We've been making lists for 100 years. Adding something to my to-do list to tell you to do does not take it off my to-do list. But at that point, I realized that there was a see no evil in my house, Danielle, right? But there was a worse reaction from other women. I had a woman, again, you can't make this stuff up, from the Jewish Federation of Arizona, leave me a message saying, I received your Excel sheet, the should I do spreadsheet. I appreciate it. And I just want to let you know I'm leaving my marriage. So 
I think this idea of consciousness raising without a solution, without us saying like, how do we collectively solve this Mm -hmm. is almost a do no harm. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually been thinking about that as well in the times that we're in with all of the social injustice around us and bringing more awareness to it, especially when it comes to healthcare for women of color, there's a lot of attention being brought to it. But I feel like we can't just talk about it without there being some sort of action, right? Because then there can be these other types of consequences that you're talking about. And we received a note from a client talking about how this conversation has made her feel almost worse that the healthcare system is against her. And that's kind of what it sounds like with this woman that got this spreadsheet, like the whole world is against her. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think, again, of course, consciousness raising is the first step, but it's really about how do we mobilize, like that's true social change, as you said, Whitney, right, to mobilize to action. And I think what I realized about um, exactly like you said, that woman that who decided to share with me was that that's really the only other narrative we see. So of course, I I love Untamed. I love Eat, Pray, Love. Like these are amazing narratives, but a lot of the other narrative that we see is like to Mm. blow up your life. And so many women say to me that they appreciate being in their own power, but that they don't have the privilege to do that, nor do they want to do that, right? So I was in that position of recognizing that I had a very traumatic childhood based on my parents' divorce and my father not being with us. My brother was disabled, couldn't read, nobody knew for years. I mean, it was just, there was a lot of things that fell through the cracks. And I think you realize that divorce is not the only option, right? And there has to be another option for women who want to live in hetero cisgender relationships other than just resigning ourselves to do it all. And that's where I was that day after Seth sent me the that monkey emoji. I was sort of in a place where I thought, okay, I have three choices. I can eat, pray, love this shit and fucking leave my life, right? But I have two young kids um, at the time. Now I have a third child. Or I could resign myself to doing it all and lose myself in the process, which is the path I was going down. I had taken less clients. I'd left the corporate workforce. I felt like I was drowning. I was having a lot of mental health consequences from losing the version of myself that you started with today, which is so beautiful that you ask women to start with that or any guests to start with your values, who you are. I felt like I was just a role. And then the third choice, which is what I ended up doing was say, okay, Um, maybe I can get my ass in gear Mm -hmm. and just become my own client. And that's what took so long. That's why this was an eight-year process or a seven-year process. I decided to get my ass in gear and say, if I can develop family systems for the most highly complex families in America, I know these principles can work for me. And so that's what I started to do. I started to interview and beta test. And I made sure that this was not, my lived experience is a Jewish, white, hetero, cisgender woman, but I made sure to mirror the US census and and also go into other countries so that that's what took so long. But it was very important to me to have that data, not only in the testing of the system, but in the beginning to understand what the true problems were around the home. I also think what you're speaking to that's so important is it's giving your partner a chance You can't be mad at them for not knowing if you don't even know all the shit you do. (laughs) 
And you can't be mad at them for not recognizing or not showing up in the way you need them to if you're not communicating what you need. And it's one reason that I actually think the kind of setup that I have in my household, I think my husband is so much better at staying at home with our children for Mm -hmm. many of the reasons that you're talking about why I wouldn't be good at it. So I, would I be able to find my voice in the home? I don't know. I think it would be hard. It it would be hard if, you know, he were, it were kind of the more traditional setup. Um, And it's exactly what you said. It's like in that kind of tradition, I fall into the, the stereotype instead of standing up for myself where he is outside the stereotype by being a stay at home dad. So he sets his boundaries and he makes his rules and he lets me know what he needs. And he has absolutely no problem doing that. (laughs) And it's great. It's one of the few things like we don't fight about our setup that we have. And, and I, I credit him a lot for that because he does know how to have his voice and, and let me know when he needs time off or needs extra help or can't do this or can't do that, where I don't know if I would have, if it would have come nearly as easily for me to do that myself. Well, I think you just gave the magic formula, which is um, the formula, I think, for a happy marriage and a situation where you can thrive is I talk a lot about the framework of boundaries, systems, and communication. So the first thing you just said was really, really important, uh, Danielle, about boundaries. Um, and how your partner is able to say to you when they, you know, when they need a boundary, when they need a permission to be unavailable. That was something that women, because of a lot of guilt and shame and sort of societal conditioning, the number one thing before we can even get to the system, right, is this idea of why was the, one of the number one things women said to me that they don't believe that they have a permission to be unavailable from their roles. If they're not working, they have to be Uh, watching their kids. If they're not with their kids, they have to be a partner or they can check in on their parents. They get permission to do that and be part of the sandwich generation. But um, the permission to be unavailable to do something for themselves, I don't just mean self-care because Sakara Life, you got that. (laughs) You know, they can can outsource that to you. But I mean um, the active pursuits of what makes you you, right? So the skier who tells me that she left her skis in the airport, um, because she had to feed her child and she was like, fuck it, who cares? And these were skis that got her a scholarship to college and were um, her ski team was her entire identity, right? It's women who tell me that they lost their permission to be interesting and interested in their own lives. And so how do we get to that place? Um, I didn't want to write about that, Whitney, Danielle. Like I'm a lawyer. I wanted to write my system. But unfortunately, when you do data work, right, you have to start um, hearing what the data says. And that was such a big part of it, this boundary, this fact that so many women said to me, I don't believe I have a permission to be unavailable. Yeah, and it's so wrapped up in value, right? Like when I think about uh, our setup, my husband knows that his value to this family unit goes far beyond taking care of our child. And so I think sometimes I can totally imagine myself as the stay-at-home mother forgetting that my value is beyond that, like that you get Mm -hmm. so wrapped up. I mean, I'm so wrapped up in, in being a mother and that role, even though I don't stay home with her, that I can imagine on top of staying home with her that you do forget your, your identity. And we allow ourselves to 
forget our value to the whole that is above just the the mothering role. It was, especially for stay-at-home mothers, I think that idea of when is there time for me, right? This is a more than 24-hour job. I don't feel valued. Yes, yes. Can I ask for it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And can I even ask for it? And it's it's hard to value the the work and the time of a stay-at-home mother because there's no financial number that gets put against it. You don't get a salary and, oh, I'm doing a better job and I have a second kid, so my salary has gone up and I'm progressing in my workplace. And you get to see that value that you're bringing to the household like you do with someone who is at a job and work and providing for the home. And I think in the past, that financial contribution, it was more valued than the value of the work at home. And I think that that also played into the role of, I don't know how to word this, but like giving that role more confidence and more right to, well, I'm going to go out with the guys after work and to do some of these types of things. Whereas the stay at home role that was traditionally the mother, because it was always feeling like needing to catch up or doing enough providing for the household that, that that wasn't measurable, that work would never end and never feel like enough. A hundred percent. And I think the main issue, and I have a colleague who wrote a book called Couples That Work, and I love her paradigm. She talks about it as power. Societies value what you can pay. And so that leads to a lot of weird, strange power dynamics, right? And so if you're a dual career earner, right, how does how does that work over your lifetime so you can give each other power to say, you're not always stuck in this role. I can be this role one time and then I can become back an earner and I can talk to you about how that's going to work. And we have open lines of communication. But I think, Whitney, what you're, what you're alluding to is something that ended up being the core finding of fair play. And this gets back to the home being dangerous because it, you can think you're fighting again over that, that glue stick. But the core finding of fair play was that as a society, regardless of whether, Danielle, you're a female breadwinner, regardless of whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever family structure you're in, if you're a woman in a same-sex relationship, we as a society, we view and value and guard men's time as diamonds. It's finite. That's how we treat it. And we view and value and guard or not guard women's time as, as sand, as infinite. And I'm a little older than you guys. So I had this days of our lives analogy where I just see like that. It's like that time of sand and the hourglass that just falls through. That sounds very esoteric, but here's how it broke down in my research. So we know that women's time is not valued the same as men's time in the workplace. You know, if you're a woman of color, it's more like 50 cents on the dollar average women of us aggregate, it's, it's about 80 cents on the dollar of a non-Hispanic white man. So we, we know that women's time is not valued the same as men's time. We see that monetary discrepancy. If a woman enters a male profession, the salaries automatically go down. So, but what I was so surprised by and why I'm so happy to be with you because you guys do a really beautiful job of going deeper, I think, um, than a lot of podcasts, which is nice that we get to do some consciousness raising here, is I was surprised by how women devalue their own time. And so this is what I mean by that. I mean that when I ask women, why are you the one 
picking up the call from the school. Let's just, just tell me why, right? So I would hear typically about four responses. One was, well, my husband makes more money than me or he's the breadwinner, right? So of course I take the call from the school. So that's a terrible argument for women because I just said even the same jobs, men make more money than us. And I would say like that would make me responsible for all the invisible work in my home because I chose philanthropy, even though my, ch- my husband chose private equity. Like that, that's a losing argument. I would say my job is actually more valuable to society because I'm helping people give their money away. That would not work, right? That argument just, time is money just doesn't work. And then the other most popular argument, which was mine, was, well, I'm just wired differently, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just better at knowing what has to get done. I'm better at care. I'm a better multitasker. I, I grew up in a single mom household. I don't need help, right? It was just that type of what I call toxic time message. And for that one, I had to go to a, a neuroscientist, one of the top neuroscientists in America. And guys, that was the only other day that I cried besides the, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries text day, where I sat across from this older white male neuroscientist. And I asked him, are women better multitaskers? Are we wired differently for care? And, and he just, in a very condescending but helpful way, looked at me and said, well, that, I don't even understand that question. Imagine, Eve, we men can convince you, women, that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for my career, because then I don't have to do it. Then I can, I have more tenure, tenured articles. I have more time in the lab. Like, I don't even understand your question. Like, is it, so he was dismissive of it, but understood the cultural expectations and what that would do to women if we believe that we are wired differently or we're somehow better multitaskers. So I actually cried in his office that day. That was a really big shattering of my consciousness for me because I did believe that that was my armor for why I was doing so much more than Seth. And I had to live in that uncomfortable space. And then the most popular argument for why traditionally women were doing more when I asked women in these heteronormative relationships, it was that, well, in the time it takes me to tell my partner what to do, I might as well just do it myself. And so for that one, I went to Dan Ariely, which is a, he's a good friend. He's also a Wall Street Journal behavior. He's a columnist, best-selling author. And so I said, well, is that a good argument for women? And he looked at me and said, no, it's the worst fucking argument he's ever heard for women. And of course, it makes sense to tell somebody how to wipe the asses or do the dishes because you only have finite time. And so I think that's the real understanding here is that all of our time is diamonds. We only get 24 hours in a day. And if you as women, if we're going to treat our time as infinite, then we're going to die. We're going to die in decision fatigue. We're going to have mental health issues. We are going to have the same types of breakdowns as I had on the side of the road that day over blueberries. Our time is diamonds. And I think no system is going to work until we set that boundary for ourselves that we deserve as much time choice over how we use our day as our partners do. And that really was a big, big eye-opening moment for me to sit Seth down and say, you know what? My time is diamonds too, and I get choice over how I get to use my time. And now for a quick break. Today, we are so excited to tell you about one of our newest products, the Foundation Prenatal. As a pregnant mama, I couldn't find a product on the market that was both comprehensive and clean. So we had to make it ourselves. The foundation prenatal includes everything you know a prenatal should have, 
plus so much more. It contains a superfood-based multivitamin and algae omega, choline for baby brain development, macro minerals, our complete probiotic formula, and of course, if you are a Saccharolite, you know you love our greens. So we included a super green supplement in there as well. And just like we have such high quality standards when it comes to our Sakara Life nutrition program and the food we're putting into our bodies, we come to these supplements with the same level of standards of quality and cleanliness. We really couldn't find anything out there on the market that met those standards. And so we had to create these anytime of your life, it's important to be putting clean ingredients into your body, but especially during this time when you are building a life inside of you or feeding a life straight from your body. So these are the highest quality supplements out there on the market. Try them. You're going to love them. I used to have bottles and bottles of different supplements all lining my counter and have to count them out and put them all together. And this just makes it so easy. They all come together in one convenient packet that you can take with your morning meal or before you go to bed. It's all food-based, so it's really easy on the stomach, especially during those times in pregnancy when anything can be a little bit harsh on the stomach. So whether you're pregnant or postpartum and breastfeeding needing to replenish some of those nutrient stores, this is a great option to ensure you're getting everything your body needs. And for a limited time, we're gifting you $25 off your first purchase of the foundation prenatal. Simply go to sakara.com forward slash prenatal, P-R-E-N-A-T-A-L, and at checkout, use the code PODCAST25. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com forward slash P-R-E-N-A-T-A-L and enter PODCAST25 at checkout for your $25 off your first time purchase. Okay, now back to our chat with Eve Brodsky. Yeah, I also think that it is letting go of our ego a little too. Like my husband does do things differently than I would do them if I were home. He sets up his day differently with our daughter. He dresses her in things that I wouldn't dress her in. He does things in his own way. And I early on spent my time trying to convince him to do it my way. And then I realized that like, I can't do that. I have to allow him to learn and maybe yes, maybe some things come more intuitively to me as the mother, but I have to allow him the space to make mistakes, to learn and to find what works for him and our daughter. And so it was releasing the expectation that if he's doing the things that I think I know how to do, that he gets to do them his way. 100%. That's just the core message of fair play. It's the idea of an ownership mindset. And the truth is, it's exactly what you say, Danielle. And I will say that I'm going to challenge you on the word intuitively because it's actually not intuitive. What it is, is it's learned, right? So that's why I call them messages. I don't call them instincts or anything intuitive. It is learned. We see cultural messages from birth that women are supposed to be the ones wiping the asses and doing the dishes. If you even read Llama Llama Red Pajama, my eight-year-old son, Ben, is the best. He read this book to our three-year-old daughter. 
he's my middle son, and he's reading this Llama Llama Red Pajama book, and it's all about Llama, Mrs. Mama, and all this stuff. And he goes, Does, is Llama's mom a single mother? <laughs> because there's no father in this book. And I was like, I don't know, but let's pretend she is, because if not, I'm, you'll, we're going to fucking burn it. <laughs> why is Llama's mother the only one picking him up? Is why is Llama's mother the only one doing the dishes, right? We, we get these cultural expectations from birth. So yeah, we're going to learn how to load a dishwasher because we only see women doing it. We don't see men in suits scrubbing toilets. Like that's the media that I want to start seeing, right? Because then it normalizes care. And also this also helps men who are in care roles. And I don't know what your husband would say, but so many stay-at-home dads I talked about said it was really condescending and strange to be the only man in the gymboree or to ask what they really do. They get the same type of lack of value, right? For, for caregiving. So this is why Fair Play became a love letter to men and why I love your husband so much because the other core finding besides the time issue was this idea around where my sweet spot is, which is the organizational management of the home. And really it's just mustard. Like that mustard analogy I give is to me, all you need to know about fair play, which is exactly echoes what Danielle said. What is an ownership mindset? Well, we all just have to think about how mustard gets in our refrigerator. And so typically in the business world, we would break that down into into steps. And so there's step one, which is the conception. Somebody, Whitney, right, has to know your second son, Johnny, likes French's yellow mustard with his protein. Otherwise, he won't eat it. That's the conception stage. And then there's the, well, a moderate, we have to monitor that mustard when it runs low and put it on a grocery list with everything else you need for the week, right? That's the planning stage. And then there's the butt, get your butt to the store, now in gloves and a mask, I guess, right, to go get the, the French's yellow mustard. And that in organizational management language is what we would call the execution phase. And so when I broke it down like that and asked men and women in hetero cisgender relationships, who does what? Men were overwhelmingly stepping in at just that third phase, the execution phase, right? And then they bring home a spicy Dijon every fucking time. And I asked for French's yellow. And don't you sit at this table with Johnny? Haven't you been sitting here for seven years? And all of a sudden, right, my tone is changing. And now we're not talking about mustard, right? We're talking about accountability and trust. And so how do you get out of a pattern like that? Well, the only way is to do the opposite. And this is where why fair play became a love letter to men. Because the number one thing men said they hated about home life was not nagging. That was number two. It was that they couldn't get anything right. That they felt like they were always walking on eggshells because they were going to be criticized for their efforts. What a shitty way to feel and like your most important domain, right? And so I started to understand that this wasn't nagging, which I find a very gendered term, but I started calling it the rat fuck, the random assignment of a task. If I go tell you to go get mustard, but I have no context for why I'm getting that mustard or it's not on my plate, well, how would I bring home the right type of mustard, right? How like mustard to me would be mustard, but it's the context of under owning the full groceries card that would start getting you paying attention to the conception and planning. And this gets back to stay-at-home fathers, oftentimes I saw that women who were the primary breadwinners, still they were holding on to the conception and planning and their husbands were executing on their cognitive labor. Now that's a terrible situation to be in because then you have no relief anywhere. So the more you, as Danielle said, you can hand over that ownership, the full grocery situation, the full extracurricular sports situation, the that is the relief that we as, we as women, we need that. 
I heard you say that you didn't leave your job or decide to to go, but that you were pushed out. Can you talk about fair play, especially for women, especially or single parents, I suppose, like in the workplace and how we start to think about making it a better work environment for parents, specifically, you know, at, at Sakara, we have a lot of women and a lot of mothers and, you know, we're doing our, our absolute best to make it a work environment that helps mothers and is, is conducive to balancing motherhood and your career. And I think one of the reasons it's hard to pinpoint, you know, like what's your policy is because for every woman, it's a little different for every parent. It's a little different what that balance means. So we've just tried to remain very flexible. If you need a little bit longer of a maternity leave, if you can't come in every other Friday, if you know, whatever you need, like, let's just talk about it instead of making people feel like they're not showing up or they're not doing their job because they need to ask for those things. So really trying to at least create the space to, let someone have their voice for what they need in terms of being a parent and a career minded person. So what are your thoughts on fair play in the workplace and what can we do to, to make it more fair? Well, first of all, that's exactly right. I think that the number one thing is that work from home is not the same thing as flexible work. And so the more that you can, in the organizational management, we call it job crafting. And so a lot of what I work with organizations on is job crafting, right? So making sure that, like you said, that there are policies so that there feels like there's transparency and fairness, but that there is not policies that do harm. So for example, I was talking to a federal governmental institution this week, we were doing a work-life balance talk. And of course the word balance, we're saying that in quotes here because it's more like a seesaw, but flexibility to weather whatever storm you have. And that organization a male supervisor, right, who has kids who are already grown, he sent out an email to all of a certain level and said, if you're in supervisory level two, you have to be back in the office as of October 1st. So again, things like that are the opposite of what you're saying, Danielle. It's these blanket policies that don't recognize people's life circumstances that often push women out of the workforce. In my situation, it was too much no, no policies, right? So then um, too much discretion to managers where there wasn't a corporate mandate in for what is flexible work look like. So I had a situation where one of my managers said, well, I take a day off a week, so you can't take that off because then they'll know I take it, right? You don't want to be hiding. You don't want to be in a place where it feels like a prison where you have to raise your hand to take a piss, I think you're the, what you're saying that I, we, we trust you as workers, it all comes down to trust. I trust you, you're going to get your work done. And that's it. I don't give a shit where you do it from. Yes, we need you to come in because we want to do some team building, but it's going to be on Wednesdays and Fridays. We'll give you advance notice. Even small businesses, right? You, you know, it's unfair to corporations to expect that the whole social safety net has to fall on them. So pushing our governmental entities is what we do. Fair play, the movement. We're trying to push for access to paid leave. We know how important paternity leave is. That's a really big part of it. And also, of course, the more that you can recognize that there is a motherhood penalty and not punish women with a loss of wages for that flexibility, the better. And so men receive a 6% increase in their wages for every child they bring into the world. And women lose 5 to 10% 
of their wages for every child they bring into the world. And it's often because many employers think, woo, well, if they need flexibility, we can trade that for salary. Wow. And the secret is the parents on our team are some of the hardest working people. I think back to your point before of like what it means to to multitask and just get things done. I mean, the minute you become a parent, you have to become the queens and kings of that. Yeah. And also my mom used to say TGIM, right? Thank God it's Monday. Like my work became my (laughs) oasis. Like hanging out with my kids all weekend is like a nightmare. It's so hard in the moment. And it reminds me of my favorite when she was Glennon Melton, you know, Glennon, she had don't carpe diem, like, don't tell me I'm going to miss these days, right? The days are freaking long. And so like when Sunday night comes, I'm doing cartwheels. So I think that, yes, parents are important and good workers. But I think the thing about the workplace is oftentimes we don't want to intrude, quote unquote, on people's homes. When actually these types of conversations about balance in the home, having men step up to the table so that you don't feel like having it all means doing it all are actually really a big piece of the work-life integration part. And I do think that men need to be having this conversation in the workplace too. I know that parental leave, whether it's for mothers or fathers, is becoming more and more the standard. And fathers are starting to have more time off when they have a, a child that's born, but they often don't take it. They don't take it because they feel the pressure to continue to stay at work or else they'll lose their place in the rat race. And work is very competitive. And so, you know, I think it's not just about having this understanding or flexibility for mothers, but also for parents in general. And having companies encourage men to take that time to support the mothers and to have time to bond with their new babies. Absolutely. It's, it's everything. And actually Darby Saxby, who is, she's a psychologist. She was a consultant on Fair Play. And the beauty of Darby's work, and this is just a hot off the presses study that hasn't even been peer reviewed yet, but will be out later this year, is how closely paternity leave tracks with mental health outcomes for women. So it's not even the mental health outcomes for men, but it's how much when men can take, and you're right, it's not these one-off, I'll take three days here and treating it as a vacation. This is looked at actual extended leave, like three months at home, often where the mother was home first and then the father was equal caregiving in the next three months as the primary parent home. And what that does to the mental health of mothers. And I know that because Seth had one day off. And I can imagine how different our life would have been if he was home with me those first three months. I mean, it would have been a whole, I think I would have came to this work, hopefully a lot earlier or not, maybe not at all, but I'm glad I did obviously, because um, I could bring it to others now. But I really know that that was one of the biggest mistakes that we both made as a couple was not advocating and setting a boundary for Seth to take and he was the CEO of his company then, right? So I think that was our mistake, right? When I didn't know any of this stuff was, of course, you have to go back. Like your comp- you know, your employees need to see you. The opposite modeling, because I was living in the toxic, as you said, Whitney, sort of this toxic time, time is money world as well. So now my future self, 12 years later, I would say that was a big mistake that you at the a top leadership level, you model 
So when I got to go to Davos this year before the world shut down, I had all these male leaders say, what's the most important thing I could do? I said, well, of course, we can talk about pay equity and leave policies for a company. But one of the most important things you can do is start being the first call on your school's call list so that over time, your employees see you, whether it's in a presentation or in a board meeting, picking up that phone to take a call from the school. There's nothing that's going to substitute from that. And that's really how you start to change culture and shift culture into prioritizing something other than work and money. It's prioritizing the family unit. It's prioritizing what it means to raise healthy children and and live in harmonious, spiritual, loving relationships. And when I think about especially American culture, I don't think that even those two things that I just mentioned are like in the top three priorities of most Americans. Um, The culture is really around success and money and yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's getting better. I mean, that's why my sons are such an integral part of our fair play system. Because what I said is I can't give you a rainbow color coded schedule right now back to whatever you can let go, you let go now. But what I can do guys is tell you two things. One, that disappointments are an investment in your future being a good whole person. And I'm glad you're having these disappointments now in this pandemic. It's an investment in your future. And two, you're going to own fair play cards. So fair play is a metaphor. There's a hundred cards that represents everything you need to do in your home and life. And hopefully you're not playing with all hundred cards and you can take things out. Like Seth and I took out thank you notes very early on and we just do a thank you. He does a thank you text to everybody and says, we appreciate. And of course we have gratitude for you, but we were able to hand over to our sons and say, the shit work you're going to learn here from doing laundry from start to finish with full CPE is going to change your life. And so even so, again, back to my middle son who has so many insights, he said to me, well, my friend said that he, his chore is folding laundry. Well, that's not executive function. That's not ownership because someone else still has to put the laundry in the laundry and has to take it out for them and clean out the, the lint in the filter drawer. He's like, they need to do that task from start to finish. And I was like, okay, well, if an eight-year-old boy knows this, then I feel like we're in a good, it's really that idea of telling our kids that the goals that are set for society are not always our authentic goals. And I think that was where a lot of the identity loss for women came about, where they said to me, I did everything society told me to do. I got straight A's, I have three Harvard degrees, I have two beautiful kids. I live in this gorgeous house in the suburbs, but I'm completely an object at rest. I'm empty. I'm not interested in my own life. But why? Why would that happen if we actually, if if society, if culture told us what made us happy, then everybody would be happy. But what we're finding now more, right, is that unless it's an authentic goal that feels true to you, um, happiness does not come from extrinsic goals. And actually money-making is part of the tool-making part of the brain. It has actually nothing to do with our the sensory part of our brains that light up when we do what makes us uniquely us. How would you say this work, like I can imagine how working on our voice, communicating what we need, like what it does for, for us, but what would you say it did for your relationship? Did your husband have an aha moment after like the monkey and after you really walked him through kind of what you were expecting and 
in response? Yes, yes, yes. But it took, this is where I had to take what I tell my clients seriously. And I was like, oh my God, this is back to being authentic. You don't want to be espousing a life that you're not necessarily living. And so for me, it was this idea that I'm a mediator and I, I work on communication constantly. And I see the results for the families that put in, into practice these principles, but I wasn't doing them in my own home. My clients were so helpful that we would work on, which is this idea of communicating when emotion was low and cognition was high. So whether it was check-ins we would do with the family or board meetings where we could bring grievances to the table so people didn't have to boil it over. And that was so powerful. And so when Seth and I started to do that as part of the fair play practice, which I, when I was designing the system, where we added in these nightly check-ins, and then they became weekly because we were customizing our default so well that we didn't really have to check in all the time. And then COVID hit, and now we're back to nightly check-ins again. <laughs> it was this idea that, oh my God, wow, like I, we're treating communication as a practice, just like exercise or meditation, just like I tell my clients to do. And it's working. It's working. We enjoy taking our walk around the block. We don't always talk about who's doing what. Sometimes it's our why. One of the conversations I had with him on one of those early walks was about garbage because he had owned garbage and he was really into the CPE model, the conception planning and execution. He understood that garbage meant getting the bins out because it's more complicated in Los Angeles than in our, just our normal trash compactor in New York. And he understood that I really wanted the liner back in the bag. Like I want the fucking liner back in the bag. That's a tone issue that I just <laughs> went into. But um, so he, he understood that and we were really good. But what he said to me on this walk was like, you're still my garbage shadow. Like I see you staring at me. Like I see when the, like, the garbage is starting to pile up, like you're staring at the garbage. You're following me around the kitchen, right? It was what happens, right? When the ownership mindset doesn't work. And that's where I realized I had left out a very important part of this system, which is that we don't just go to who does what, because then the card game, the metaphor just becomes a glorified version of a list. You have to really start with your why. And we never have conversations around garbage. We just don't do that. Like people don't even remember the vows they took on their wedding day, right? Let alone having these deep conversations. But when Seth and I said, we're going to take our check-in around garbage, he's like, okay, what do you want to tell me about garbage? And I was like, well, I want to tell you a story about my childhood you don't know about me. Yes, you know about my mother and her lack of possessions, but one of the lack of possessions was a garbage can. We would just have a, a takeout bag and a knob. And so garbage would just spill out all over the floor. My mother worked nights. She had to leave us many nights. To, she was a professor and that her, she taught classes. She was trying to get tenure. So she would work nights. I would put my disabled brother to bed. He would ask for water. And then cockroaches and water bugs would be everywhere all over the kitchen when I'd go mm. get him the water. When the light would turn on, this was Avenue C and 14th Street in the 80s. Wasn't the cleanest place to grow up. I grew up next to a power plant, the Con Ed power plant. So it wasn't clean anyway, but it was like the cockroaches and water bugs were just like my breaking point. And so I said to Seth, you know, when I see like the garbage piling up over the garbage bin, I start having like a panic attack, like I'm a latchkey kid again, like I'm eight uh, or I'm nine. I'm left alone with my brother. And like, that's why I needed to be taken out more frequently. And Seth said, okay, well, what about if I tell you, I don't give a shit about garbage. And I had a housekeeper growing up and I slept on Domino's pizza <laughs> boxes in my fraternity, right? So what happens when you have to get something done 
every single day. What happens when you have value system issues? Well, the goal is to come up with a minimum standard of care. That happens in our medical system. And I talk about that in Fair Play. It really works well in our legal system. What would a reasonable person Mm. do? And a reasonable person we decided would take out garbage once a day. And Seth said, okay, I can live with that. And then garbage started going out once a day. It was like a freaking miracle. It was like Moses parting (laughs) the Red Sea. It was the first time in my life where I wasn't reminding him, where it wasn't on my plate. And then I was just happier. And then we could build on those small wins. And then we were getting into a system where we were customizing our defaults and things were changing for us. And then I was watching that happen for other couples too. And sort of that's, that's how Fair Play started being tested. It was beta tested. And then that's how it grew into ultimately the system as it lives today. That's incredible. I, I love that you're recommending making it part of a practice and having these types of conversations, these check-ins. I think a lot of couples wait until they have to do it with a professional, wait until they're in therapy to start having those conversations. And a lot of people don't want to go to therapy just with what all of that is. And so this, this is like real actionable, doable work that can really make a big difference. I think that's a great tie-in to our light work segment of the podcast. We learned so much already through this podcast today. So thank you for all of that. But we'd love for you to share a light work practice or exercise with all of our Sakar Light listeners to help them on this path and allow them to start shining their light a little bit brighter. I love that. I love that we end with actionable items. And I think we can recap everything into two. One is your time is diamonds. And if you don't believe that, I want you to unpack why. And if you believe your time is diamonds, but you say to yourself that you don't believe you have a permission to be unavailable, we want to believe that we have permission Mm. to be unavailable and to say, I'm not available to you right now. And so that's practice one. That's an internal practice. Do we believe our time is as valuable as our partner's time? And number two is this idea of exactly, Whitney, what you just recapped, which is that we want to start investing in our communication like we're investing in, I don't know, toilet paper or hand sanitizer or exercise or meditation. I will say that, yes, you can, of course, meditate and do all these other practices, but the most important practice I can tell you is your communication with practice with your partner. And so if we can reframe communication is not a means to an end, but a practice that sometimes, you know, you can bring tequila to or cookie dough as I, I, we like to, right? But we don't even know why we're here, but we know that every night we invest 10 minutes in each other and we're not sure what we want to say. Maybe some nights there won't be anything to say. And actually, we're not going to start talking about who does what in the first two weeks of this practice. We're just going to sit here and look at each other or take a walk together. Once you start practicing that, you realize that you can have really, really hard conversations in a time that, that your emotions are low and your cognition is high because you know you're coming back to the table mm. as opposed to having get everything out in the moment because that's the one time you feel like you have your partner's attention. I love that. Those are such beautiful like light work sessions. And I, I think the last one, especially we talk about a lot at Sakara, it's almost knowing your toolkit to get back to feeling really good is the most important of anyone's wellness journey. It's not that you're supposed to like 
be well all the time. It's a pendulum. Everything, life is a pendulum. We're going to swing. Sometimes we're going to have that extra glass of wine and French fries. Sometimes we're going to be super clean. And it's that swing is okay and normal and joyful, but it's not joyful if you don't know how to get back to center and you don't have those tools. And so what I hear you saying is like, build that toolkit so that you and your partner can get back to feeling really good. Absolutely. And know that if something feels bad, that you have an outlet where you can have difficult conversations. Difficult conversations are not anything women have been learned to do. We've actually been conditioned Mm. to silence ourselves. So true. uh, For difficult conversations. So the fact that we are here for you. This is a community of women to say that we believe that you can use your voice. It is your power, but do it in a way, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, right? Do it in a way that people can join you. Love that. RIP. An amazing place to end. Thank you for being on the podcast today and sharing your wisdom and your stories with everyone. I have taken away a lot today and I'm really excited to dig in further. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing this work. Oh my God. Thank you guys. You're doing a very important work too. Thank you for your voices. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That was incredible. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. <laughs>